how it works, how, how it's supposed to be understood, etc. And I know we could go on and on for hours and hours and hours, but I think for tonight, um, it would just be good to, to take a brief look at how the New Testament was written, uh, what the purpose of certain uh, aspects of the New Testament are, what audiences that, that, that you know, the, the apostles were trying to reach, and just how we as believers in the New Testament should understand how to read and apply the New Testament today. So here is one of the questions, and I'll sort of go through it, and then we'll talk about what we're going to do today. First, it says, you speak about the purpose of the New Testament. Can you explain how the New Testament relates to the assembly? Now, over the last you know few weeks, a few years really, but over the last few weeks, I have spent a, a lot of time focusing on the fact that the New Testament letters specifically are written to the people of Christ in the assembly. They're not written to the people of Christ in a vacuum, nor people of Christ in a, uh, you know, isolated, because some of, the re- some of the reasons behind the New Testament and its writing is that we see a, a desire for the apostles to see the church walk together in unity. And so a lot of the instruction, the correction, has to do with how the, the life that we live as Christians together with the, with the saints is going to always come at a cost. So there's always going to be division uh, of, of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A division of affection, a division of labor, a division of resources. There's always going to be something that's biting for our time and our talents and our treasure and our focus and our affections. And when we're together with the church, we're going to see that even more and more. And so I thought one of the ways that I could explain this is to just go through the Scripture, go through the New Testament, and ask ourselves, you know, what is it that the New Testament is, you know, how is it constructed, and, and what is it that we're supposed to understand relating uh, to, the, to the Scripture in the context of the local church. So hopefully I'm making some sense. So I've decided to make this a special broadcast, and my camera's at a sort of different angle. Uh, so when I'm looking up, I'm looking at the questions and, and et cetera. So it seems, it seems odd to me because I've never had to look at the camera from this point of view before. But anyway, um, that, that's sort of where we're going to go. And if you have comments or thoughts, please, please feel free to... Um, to uh, you know, put them in the comment section. Whether you're watching on YouTube, if you're on YouTube, please click the like button there. Subscribe if you want to get more updates to some of our preaching. If you're on Facebook, feel free to send us a private message or also you know uh, discuss things in the comments. If I don't see them tonight, uh, I'll definitely be able to add them to future broadcasts. And of course, you can go to anchoringfaith.org or gracetruth.org and leave uh, comments or questions related to these things um, absolutely at any time. Uh, related to your questions or the things that we teach here. So anyway, I'm rambling now. Let's get busy and go ahead and get started. This New Testament. What is the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is divided into two specific sections uh, or two specific types. You have historical writing and you have letters. Now, there, you, some of you might, wait a minute, you're missing this, you're missing that. No, it's not gospels, histories, instruction, you know, we're not talking about the contents of these writings. We're just specifically talking about the genre. And if we're talking about the genre, we really should just say the whole of the New Testament is just a collection of letters. But there are four documents, five documents rather, that are historical in nature. They're accounts, um, and those are histories. So the other 
letters, all the other letters in the New Testament, all the other writings in the New Testament are just letters. The Revelation is a letter. Everything else is a letter. Uh, there's, you know, that there's no other way to define them. I say, oh, it's prophecy. No, it's a letter. It's a letter written to the churches. It's the format's a letter, etc., and so on and so forth. So we'll talk about some of those things as well. And I won't, you know, we're not going to exhaustively deal with a New Testament survey, uh, but I hope that by expressing some of this stuff and teaching some of this stuff in, in a simple way or in a succinct way, it'll help you have a better set of eyes on which to look at the New Testament. So in that, um, let's just uh, let's just go straight into some of the divisions of these of the histories and some of the letters. We have the Gospels, and the Gospels are in two categories. And basically, we have the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they work together as a narrative of events, but they're put together in a specific way. And we'll talk about that. Uh, in a minute. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written by the named apostles, and they are a record of the account of the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the life events of Jesus, but each of them have a different audience. And, uh, you know, for those of you who are familiar with the synoptic problem and other types of academic or higher critical um, assessments, you know, just relax. We don't have to worry about these things. This is this is not something that the, the the you know the Christian in the church needs to deal with. As a matter of fact, I don't even think it's something that a lot of the pastors of churches need to deal with. But because you know it's important to a lot of folks, it's worth mentioning. When we get to the synoptics, we see Jesus um, illustrated in several different ways. When we get to the Gospel of John, it's not as much of a narrative and life events as it is instruction and theology. And we see the difference between the synoptics and John, not just in that, but also in their purposes. And we also see that in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the writers are teaching things from more of a factual point of view uh, about the humanity of Jesus, undergirding his his human nature and his uh, purpose in his humanity uh, being a servant, someone who serves you know, his people, uh, being a king, someone who leads his people, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but in John's account, in John's gospel, uh, this is very theological. And, you know, and I've got a lot of thoughts about, about how these intersect, etc. But for tonight, I just want to focus on the basics of this. So the gospels are really a historical account of Jesus' teaching, uh, which also includes some historical events like the birth or the baptism, and not every gospel has all of these things. Uh, but most importantly is to give a record of the important information about Jesus and his teaching related to the audience or the purpose of the writing, but it is considered history. So the gospel accounts are considered historical accounts. Uh, then we have another historical book, which is written by the Apostle Luke, and that is the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is the history of the church. So we've got the history of Jesus' life and ministry and his teaching and theology, and then a history of the church. So the Acts of the Apostles, or as some like to you know, say, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles or for the Apostles or with the Apostles. Um, but at the end of the day, Luke wrote his gospel and the book of Acts together as a reading to be understood, one grasping the teachings of Jesus and his person, 
and the other showing the expansion of this gospel of this person, Jesus, who is the God-man, into the world through the apostles, and specifically, or more emphatically, the apostle Paul and his uh, missionary journeys and his imprisonments and freedoms, and etc. So that is, in a nutshell, the historical elements of the New Testament. The next thing is letters. And we've got four, five, excuse me, we have five authors of the New Testament letters, and that is the Apostle Paul, who accounts for most of them, the Apostle John, who accounts for the second number, then James, Jude, and Peter. And of course, Peter has two letters, but it's, I'm just talking about in quantity, they, they, they wrote um, a lot less than, you know, John, and of course, a lot less than Paul. And there's no other authors. They, you know, there are some people who would argue, well, so-and-so sound like this, and, and, and go ahead and tell you right now, I scribe Paul uh, as the author of Hebrews, and I have a lot of reasons for that. Um, if you don't like that, then say that a scribe wrote it, but it's Paul's theology and Paul's, le- Paul's wording, um, Paul's teaching. So whoever, you, however you want to handle that, it is Pauline theology in the book of Hebrews. So we ascribe that to Paul. So those letters are written by these five men, and they're written to churches and to individuals. And that's one of the main things that I want to emphasize when it comes to the New Testament. The New Testament was written as letters, and those letters are meant to be read in one sitting. They're not meant to be studied as a textbook, even though they have, like, for example, Romans, as we'll see. Uh, We have a lot of doctrine and some deep theological things there on justification and faith and salvation and redemption and all this stuff. Um, They weren't written as a textbook. They're written as a letter. So they're made to be read in a sitting and they're made to be read aloud to the church. So it's either a letter to the church to be read aloud or a letter to a specific person or a letter to a specific elder. And the only person that wrote to an elder was, you know, well, you know, Jude. Um, nope, it's, it's really uh, Paul and, um, and John. So we see John writing in an ambiguous way to the elders of the church, but ultimately, uh, all of John's writings are church letters, and then we see Paul writing to some individuals, um, Philemon, Timothy, and Titus. So in that, we uh, we also have some further instruction uh, in that regard. So those are the two types of letters, or two specific audiences of those letters. This is the church, uh, you know, the churches found in Galatia, Thessalonica, Corinth, Rome. Uh, Colossae, Philippi, the church of Ephesus, I forgot, and then also the letter to the Hebrews, um, of which Peter says is Paul's, uh, to the Hebrew people in the dispersion, so all over the the area, all over the region, and uh, so multiple cities would have been involved in the writing of the letter to the Hebrews. When we talk about the individual letters, we see Philemon, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Paul wrote these things. Uh, Philemon, he wrote as a letter. Just to go ahead and, you know, it's very simple. He wrote it as a letter because Philemon was a supporter of his and his missionary journeys. And Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. And to undergird the gospel truth of forgiveness, redemption, and intimacy in the context of the confession of the true gospel by one, by an individual, um, he pleaded with Philemon to submit to the fact that Onesimus was a brother now, no longer a slave, and that when Onesimus returned home, he was no longer to be charged in the crime of abandonment um, or nor treated as a slave, but to be treated as if Paul had come to visit. And it's a really rich little note 
uh, written, and that's why the Lord has canonized it in the New Testament letters and why the, New, why, why the first century apostles used it in their list of letters, which is where we get our New Testament from. Uh, and then, of course, to Timothy. He writes two, two letters to Timothy, uh, different times of his ministry, but Timothy was a protege or a mentee of Paul. Timothy was a young man and had come under the tutelage of Paul to be trained in the ministry as an elder and as an elder of, or not an elder of elders, but as a teacher of elders, as all elders are to be about the business of doing, is training other men to fill the role of elder in the local assembly. Because uh, it's not really a biblical model to go out and, and, and hunt for a pastor and then bring him in and then calling family. Um, it may be the way things are done, but it's not a biblical model in that regard. So Paul teaches Timothy some things, and you know we can talk about that as well. And then, of course, Paul teaches Titus as an elder, and he's supposed to be appointing other elders as well. And when we see the teaching there in Philemon, Timothy, and Titus, we can make some general and theological application. But we have to remember, these letters were given to these people. And only when we see in these writings for these three letters that Paul says, teach this to the church, or this is required of others, um, we aren't to try to adhere to the fact that, you know, whatever, whenever Paul says to Timothy, entrust to reliable men, that means everybody in the church is supposed to be mentoring people in the faith to be elders. That's wrong. That's just, that's, a, that's really ridiculous. Um, you know, like receiving an order from your doctor and thinking you have the right to go in there and do surgery. No, that, that didn't work. You might read the order, but the order is not, you know, universal, if I can say it that way. Uh, even though there is some doctrine there and there's some teaching there and we glean from it, and of course they should be read to the church. They were read to the church by way of information and admonishment to understand and be submissive to those who are giving uh, charge for their soul, who are going to be accredited that. And of course Paul establishes some of those th same teachings in relationship to the, uh, in relation to the construction of the church um, in some of his other letters as well. So we'll just go from there <laughs> and keep moving right along. And then we've got the letters of John. And the letters of John, he wrote, of course, his three little notes, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote things known or things revealed, what we call revelation, or some people use the transliteration of the Greek, apocalypse. Um, it is not prophecy. It, it's not supposed to be seen as prophecy. Now, portions of John's letter, uh, things revealed, um, is, of course, written in a prophetic style, uh, as was very prominent during the first century, especially among Semitic writers. But it's not, it's supposed to be understood as a letter. Revelation is written as a letter. I mean, if you go to the book of Revelation and you look and see how it actually is, uh, you know, how it started, um, well, I've got to get to my little thing here. Sorry, guys. Uh, you know, you can see very clearly, um, I can't make it, I can't make it come up here. Well, maybe it is. But you can see there, oh yeah, there, there it was. You can see that it says, you know, Revelation of Jesus Christ to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel, uh, a messenger to a servant, John, who bore witness. And he says right here, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And he gives a salutation, an introduction. This is a this is a letter. The format of this writing is is to be understood as letter, even though there is some prophetic language in it. It's not to be considered like a sealed prophecy or, or things of that nature or an unsealed prophecy, etc. So he's writing to the churches, to the congregations, and to their pastors. As you'll know, I'm writing to the angels of these 
churches in Asia Minor, these seven, and the number seven, of course, is a, a number of completion. If you want to know more about a, a way of reading Revelation, you can go to gracetruth.org and search there on a reading Revelation series uh, where we took 26, 27 weeks to illustrate just going through, reading the text, and talking about the text within its context without any interpretive uh, imagination, if you will. And it's not completely accurate. I've learned some things even since I've taught that a few years ago. But ultimately, we learn to read the Scripture within the context of itself, and we learn to identify what John is speaking in his revealed things or things known by what he wrote in his letter. So the, the key to what John teaches is found in uh, the rest of what John teaches and, and vice versa. So this is the letters of John, and uh, you know he wrote these things specifically to um, to the church to deal with, uh, of course, love and intimacy and assurance, uh, you know, to to walk away from sinfulness and in certain aspects. But most most importantly, he wrote these letters so that the church may be unified in their understanding of the gospel and to understand that to love the Lord is to love each other and that it's going to come at a great cost because it's going to be difficult. It's going to be very, very difficult. And um, that, we don't, that we don't bake ourselves into knowing we have eternal life because of the fact that we are loving, but that because we have eternal life, we therefore should be loving because that is the epitome of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Anyway, yes, because Christ, God first loved us, we now love him. And he loved us in what way? How do we know God loves us? Because he gave his son. God's love is seen in what he does. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a feeling uh, in that context. Uh, it is a doing. It is what God does. So let's continue to move right along here. Um, now I don't know what's going on with that. There we go. So we have the Gospels, and we're going to talk about the four Gospels, and not as much about John um, as we will the, you know, the synoptics, but in the Gospels, we're supposed to read the Gospels as believers. Now, some people say, well, it was written to unbelievers. Of course, it's for the sake of unbelievers to understand. But for the most part, the letters, I mean, the Gospels even, all the New Testament was written to the church. Um, there may be things in, in there, of course, the teaching of Jesus, the Gospel, the theology, and uh, all of these things that, that, that demonstrate and teach us about uh, even the narrative of how Jesus taught, etc., and the apostles taught. Uh, of course, unbelievers, and when they hear these things, as God wills, he can cause them to be believers, you know, through regeneration, through the gift of faith and the working of repentance, to have a changed mind, to see and, and apprehend and rest in the truth of the doctrines of Christ or the teachings of Christ. Um, but Matthew's gospel then, as, as believers, was written to you know, predominantly Jewish believers. And he focuses on the idea that the prophetic word of the Old Testament prophets pointed to the time when Israel would receive a true king in the lineage of David. And in the lineage of David, this true king would do much more than David ever did. And it wasn't going to be like David. David was like him as a shadow, as a foreshadow. And the true king was going to create an eternal kingdom with his people. Now, of course, as Jewish people, they really understood that in the context of ethnicity and genealogy rather than in the context of God does as he wishes and has mercy on whom he has mercy. And they missed the ideas found in the Old Testament teaching of their entire childhood up to the day they died that the Old Testament is to point to Christ, the King of Kings, 
rather than to point to Messiah as just, a, as just the best king or a final king for an earthly kingdom. It points to the fact that these Jews need to learn how to read the Old Testament in the lens of the new revelation, the mystery revealed of Jesus Christ. So in that, um, we see, if you read Matthew, we see it, and I could talk about the divisions of Matthew and the different stories and the things that he teaches, but if you look at it, he really shows Christ's lordship over Israel as a redeemer that is not of this world, but that he is the king. And everything that the Old Testament pointed to from the law, from the precepts, from Moses, everything that, that, that has ever been written that they were very familiar with is fulfilled in Christ and pointed to Christ and so on and so forth. And so we then, as non-Jewish believers, should also read it in that context. And some of you might be saying, well, Tippins, you know, where, where do you get this information from? Um, well, just read it. Just read it. What happens typically is that we don't read, in, this, in our culture here in the United States, we don't read the Bible. We really don't read the Bible. We read the whole 66 compilation, sometimes straight through, but we don't read Matthew. Uh, we don't go in there and just read it and read it and read it. And then if we do, you know, maybe we don't read anything else. Uh, maybe we haven't read John's Gospel. Maybe we haven't read the teaching of Paul or, or, or anybody else. And so we have a very dissected and broken uh, understanding or relationship with the text of Scripture to the point that we have more verses that are important rather than letters that are important. And by doing so, we divide God out and dissect him into a place where we don't have the full counsel of the Word of God. So that's one of the things that Matthew wanted to help his readers understand is the full counsel of the prophets um, culminated in the person of Jesus Christ and everything they wrote, everything that happened in the history of the Israelites, everything that happened from the creation of the world beyond uh, was for the purpose of expressly revealing the fullness of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Messianic King. So hopefully that makes some sense there. The second gospel, of course, in, 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 our, in our New Testament is the gospel of Mark. Now Mark, there's a lot of things I could talk about in the context of higher criticism and things of that nature, but Mark wrote predominantly to Roman people. And why? Because he was in Rome, and we see the uh, other areas of Scripture where Mark was in Rome, and, and he wrote to a Roman audience. Um, and one of the reasons we know that he was writing to a Roman audience, not only because of the location where he was and the fact that he intersects Roman, Roman culture there uh, in his language and, and some of his uh, colloquialisms and some of the uses of some of the phrases he used are completely Greek, I mean completely Roman, um, you know, he, he explains Jewish customs as if they've never heard of them. So you know he's not writing to a Jewish audience. And he's teaching the Roman people that Jesus Christ, they already, you know, they, they heard he was the king of the Jews, but he was a slave of his people. He was a servant. And so this human idea of the, the God of heaven, who is the king of all kings now coming uh, into the flesh to be a servant, um, was sort of strange because if you know much about the Romans, I mean, they, they, they called their Caesar Lord. Uh, they called their Caesar God. And so it's something that was a real shock to them. And, and we know that Paul parallels these same things in Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10, specifically chapter 10. Um, and 
Mark, writing his gospel, is writing to these Roman Christians, and he explains Jewish customs, and it's written in such a way that it's supposed to be read in one sitting. Uh, it, it's just, it's really hard to break Mark's gospel up. It's just written in a way that if you just listen to the whole thing, you sort of absorb it, and it's it's much more palatable to just take it in in one sitting than it is to go in and just, you know, read here, read there. Because remember, it's a letter first and foremost, but it's also historical. So it's written, of course, but it, the genre in and of itself would be a history. And, uh, you know, we see some of the parallels there between Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and I won't go into all of them, but, you know, some of the things that are, that are there are also displayed in the other Gospels and vice versa. Um, and anyway, that's Mark's Gospel there for you. The next one, Luke, Luke's Gospel. And Luke is writing to the Greeks. He's writing to the Greeks. And uh, one of the reasons we know that is because he's, he's, he writes very well, and not that you need to know, nor would it be in, you know, important for you to know this, but even Greek scholars look and go, wow, you know, Luke was a very educated man. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Um, sometimes you say doctor today, it doesn't always mean that, but he was a physician, and he taught the Greeks um, and actually addresses his letters to Theophilus, and that is a, a word that means the lover of God, and so, you know, most people who, in a precursory reading of, of Luke, uh, that means the Gospel of Luke and his letter, uh, historical narrative of Acts, um, same attention, the same person. Uh, no one believes that it's an actual individual named the lover of God, but rather it is the Greeks who receive the letter and read it as believers, and he calls them lover of God. So it's a very term, it's a very endearing term, and he wanted these two letters or these two writings to be read together. So one is the teaching of Christ as the righteous human being, the true perfect human being, worthy of sacrifice, worthy of praise, worthy of honor, worthy of glory, who came into the world. And this is someone who um, stirred and started the totality of the Christian faith in its real sense now. I'm not talking about historical Christianity. I'm talking about the Christian faith in its real sense. That so much so that when he wrote these two things, he wanted them to be understood and uh, and re read and acknowledged together so that the Greeks who would read his gospel and his historical narrative would appreciate not just the doctrines and the prophecies concerning Christ, who is the righteous human being, who is also God, but also what happened and the after effect of the expansion of the local assemblies all over the world uh, historically, moving into um, even present day, if you will. Like if, Luke, if Luke were still writing, he could continue to be writing church history. Um, so that's the purposes of Luke. That's the purpose of Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Then we get through with the history, the Gospels, and of course John. I didn't mean to skip John, but John, I didn't skip John. But John is deals with the theology of Jesus, not as much in his humanity as it is his divine person, his divine nature, and so Jesus is seen as the God Man, who is the complete essence of the of the Father, who is the one who came from heaven, who is the one that the Father has sent. And the difference in the synoptics in John's gospel, one specific thing that needs to be understood is that in, in John, in the synoptics, Jesus does a lot of broad teaching. Well, he does the same thing. I mean, he does not have four different lives, but the synoptics emphasize the larger public teaching of Jesus, where John's gospel emphasizes the 
small, tiny conversations that he had with individuals. For example, you know, his mother, for example, the few people at the wedding, for example, uh, you know, Andrew, for example, Nicodemus, uh, the woman at the well, the blind man, the paralytic, and the list goes on and on. So we see this large teaching, and then John's gospel focuses on these intimate moments where Jesus is able to be omniscient and work in the lives of individuals. And that's one of the reasons that God, John's gospel is a, is probably the best evangelistic writing in the New Testament by, bar none. It is the best thing to show unbelievers, and it is the bread and the butter of new believers and mature believers alike that they don't lose sight of the fact that even the synoptics who emphasize his humanity did so to point to his divinity. And the teaching of salvation and redemption through the Gospel of John is, is, is as thorough in the context of, I don't know why my, sorry about that, I don't know why my camera's all blurried up there, is as thorough um, as even Paul's writing, uh, even though it's done in narrative form. Uh, so we get to see the emphasis of Jesus teaching certain deep theological things uh, through the lens of the one whom he loved the most, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which, of course, we know is John. So the letters then, after the Gospels, uh, are written to the assembly, to the church as a whole, or to individuals as they relate to the church. Now, it doesn't change the purpose. The purpose is, is that as individuals, they were working within the body of the church. As elders, and then Philemon as uh, an individual who was tied to the local assembly who needed to understand the relationship he had with people who came to faith. Not worry about who they were, but who they are now, who they are once they come to know the truth. They are found there to be seen and, and judged in Christ because that affects the assembly, you see. And then the others, uh, Paul writing um, you know, these pastoral epistles to, to these elder brothers so that they could learn um, to work within the church and to lead the church and to encourage the church, as we see Paul emphasizing this to the to the Ephesians. You know, he says that the, the those who teach and those who are called to give oversight and shepherding um, are supposed to continue to teach the apostles' teaching and to undergird the church's work in the ministry by preparing them to do it through the teaching and through the encouragement and through the oversight. Um, you know, the elders aren't to be teaching every single person and doing Bible studies and and you know, and, and and waiting tables. It's not that they they can't, but that it's not the emphasis of their calling. And if they do all of these things, then they will they will actually disobey the Lord and those other things which are most important for their calling. So that's why we have deacons. That's why we have those who serve in the office of servant, so that they may empower and equip and organize the servanthood of every believer and the priesthood of every believer for the sake of the local church. So the letters are written for that purpose. Let's go through a couple of things. The letters are written to encourage the church, to encourage the church for whatever reason, for whatever might be discouraging or for whatever might be going well, like Thessalonians. He was encouraging them to continue in the faith, to continue in their love for one another. Uh, it, was a, it was a really, really good encouragement uh, to, on both sides of the coin there. Uh, the letters are also written to teach. So they teach specific things, but they're not to be understood as textbooks. They're letters. They're intimate, personal things that the apostles wanted the church to know as it related to whatever occasion, problem, or, or, or you know, commendation that they might have been giving uh, to a specific person or persons or a particular congregation. 
So they wanted to encourage and to teach. And then they also wanted to correct. So sometimes, you know, this thinking is bad. This doctrine is bad. This, uh, you know, the, the, this, this action is bad. This attitude is bad. You're not listening to me, Paul would say sometimes. Those who won't listen to this letter, kick them out of the church. Don't consider them a brother until they come back and are submissive to the writing that I give. I don't care who. If a cat meows out the word of God, we have to obey it if we are a believer. We are bound to do what the Bible teaches us to do in all seasons, in all circumstances, in every aspect of every sense of our relationship with the body of Christ and, and his people, uh, no matter what we think, feel, desire, or can manipulate in any other way. We are bound to it. And Paul was adamant on that. That's why he constantly defended his apostleship. Because people, I don't have to listen to Paul. He's not one of us. He's not like that. He's just different. He's blah, blah, blah. It didn't matter. So whatever the scripture teaches in the context of how the church should operate and do and deal with certain things in correction or in truth, we are bound to it. And those who refuse to listen are to be put away and put out until they come back and say, I'm sorry, I am part of this family. I am part of the body of Christ, and I will listen to the scripture. Then we can work out all the details. But uh, you know, we don't we don't get to we don't get to dictate and strong arm like a terrorist our our way of thinking in that context. The letter sometimes dealt with that. There were people who were wanting their own way. Fourth, the letters are written for growth, for spiritual growth, for emotional growth, for unified growth, for ministry growth, for missions growth, for evangelism growth. All these are the different things that you know we buzzwords we use with the church, but ultimately growth together and their understanding of the gospel more and more, and then also for their understanding of living out the gospel together. Um, Five, the one of the you know, and these aren't exhaustive. Just something I came up with just before broadcast time, and you know, individual instruction of what a church must be, and what a church must have in order to constitute a church. It must have people. It must have professing believers. It must have the, um, it, it, you know, it must have uh, <laughs> elders. It must have you know, oversight, it must do certain things, and then corporate instruction of what the church should do and what the church should believe doctrinally. This is what the church should believe. This is what the church should be doing corporately. So all these things are in the letters of the apostles, and we'll talk about some of those things if we have time. There's a couple, I don't want to go through every letter of the New Testament, but I think I want to break down a few of those that, that we're probably not as familiar with, or, and just to give a sense of how the New Testament should be read and how the New Testament should be understood. Um, <clears throat> in a way that could relate to the New Testament assembly. So that's something that, that would be important, um, I, I believe. So let's try that for a second. Let's go through the letter of James. And I'm teaching James on midweek, and I've been out for a couple of months, but now we pick back up in week five, and this week will be week six. But James wrote to Jewish Christians, and these Jewish Christians were across the nation. They were all over the place in the dispersia. And James writes this letter as a practical letter of instruction to believers. It's not evangelistic. None of the letters are. There's no letter written in the New Testament that's supposed to be read out loud so that somebody can come to faith. Um, it's not written to the church um, uh, because they thought that the church was lost. Uh, they weren't written to elders because they thought elders were unconverted. No, no, no. The apostles always affirmed the conversion of anybody who affirmed the gospel despite differences, despite error, despite anything else that may intrude, the letters were written to correct those intrusions, to solidify the doctrines, and to exercise oversight of making sure that the church got on the same page in two things. One, living together according to the gospel, and two, dealing with the right understanding of the truth of the gospel. 
and we work through these things without our pet peeves and without our, you know, without our encroachment above and beyond uh, what the Bible commands and teaches. Uh, so there's practical application to the book of James. And then also encouragement and suffering. Um, you know, James wanted to encourage these Christians, these Jewish Christians, in their suffering. He also wanted to show them that the most important aspect of their life in order to obtain wisdom from the Lord and not be double-minded is that they are to settle their differences by and, 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 and really affect their intimacy by being patient with each other and not feeling like they were superior or even in the humble brag, it's all of the Lord's grace that I'm not, that I, that I believe what I believe, but you don't believe what, you know, this kind of stuff. No, James knocked that stuff in the gut and threw it down the staircase. He says, no, you're going to relate together and you're going to treat each other in the way that, this, that the gospel calls you to treat each other. And let the Lord, through the process of, of interaction and intimacy, when he sees fit, uncover wolves or, or, or goats or you know improper life and, and things of that nature. Let, let the Lord do those things. So that's, that's one of the things that James, James is not a, a, a test of faith to see if you're truly born again. That, that's not true. James did not write that letter. Neither did John write his letters to that end. And we got First Peter and Second Peter. First Peter, he wrote to believers to encourage them in suffering. He wrote to remind them of the work of redemption in Christ Jesus. He, he wrote to exhort them to be subject to the governing authorities. And he wrote to affirm himself and Paul were in agreement. Because, you know, people were rumor mill. Well, you know, Peter shouldn't be listened to because Paul had to rebuke him. He's an unbeliever. That's garbage. That's just so satanic. That kind of stuff is just so demonic. Uh, we need to rejoice when people reconcile, not then plug holes in the rest of their testimony because we want to get to the bottom of something suspicious. Suspicion is from Satan, y'all. Fear is from Satan. Uh, the disposition to, be, to not believe people is from Satan, and I'm going to say that a thousand times over the next few years. Uh, it's from the devil, and if, and if that's the place you live, you are not living in the joy, and you are not living in the, in the, in the freedom of Christ, and the Spirit is not giving you that. That's not called discernment. That's destruction. Discernment gives you joy. Discernment settles your spirit. Discernment settles our soul to know all is well with our soul. Discernment knows, you know what? No matter what's going on with that person over there, I'm going to pray for them and love them, and I know the Lord's going to bring it to the place that He wants to bring it in His timing. That is what the Scripture is teaching us. That's what Peter is trying to help these people understand. Second Peter, the same thing. He continues to tell them that they need to grow in grace. They need to mature through the trials of life. And like James, he says, don't let the trials push you to fall away. Don't just walk away from the church, like Paul says to the Hebrews. Don't walk away from the people of God just because there's stress. Don't walk away from the calling just because there's tension. Don't do that. Because that's not what the Scripture calls us to. It calls us to endurance and then promises us that endurance comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, he says, don't run from the body and don't run from the truth. And then the third thing here I wanted to just to bring up is that the point of Second Peter is that Jesus is coming back. So let's hold fast and wait on Him. Let's wait upon the Lord in the trials and let's wait knowing that one day, even if we die now or we suffer greatly or everything we have is taken away from us, we still have everything because Christ has promised that He's coming back to see us. Jude. Jude's a, a, a neat little letter, and it's got some interesting stuff there. And, you know, we could talk for an hour about Jude, but, you know, Jude is, 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 is written to, in, to teach the church to endure in the faith, to teach the church to resist false teachers because they had gotten, I mean, Jude is a late written letter, 
And, man, people had gotten complacent, and they just accepted the reality that, oh, you know what, everybody that says Jesus is, is okay, hey, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now, would, would just somebody saying, I believe in Jesus, constitute a gospel confession? Of course not. Well, what do you mean? And tell me more, and let me hear your testimony. And then we have an evangelistic ability to come in and, and, and you know, and, and talk about some of the things that, uh, that the Scripture teaches, and someone may come to the truth. But we just don't say, I love Jesus. As, we don't accept, I love Jesus, or I believe in Jesus as a gospel confession. There's got to be some substance to it. There's got to be some specifics there. And there's a few of those things that we've talked about before that are necessary according to the Scripture. Um, but we endure in the faith. But see, what happens is we have gotten, and this church got into the place of just being complacent, not because they were lazy or, or, or you know, non-discerning. It's just the trials and the suffering had left. So everybody just squeezed in. But guess what happened? False teachers, unbeknownst to the church, had squeezed in. And their motive, see, the difference between a, a, a wolf false teacher and someone who's just wrong is a, a false teacher, according to Jude, is one who comes in with the intention of twisting people's doctrine, changing people's idea. You know, we want, like Galatia, we want to get these guys who are really strong in the faith, let's get these guys to come in and start thinking about circumcision like the Judaizers. So Jude was saying, hey, we've got to resist, resist false teaching. Don't let these people teach this stuff. Call them to quit. What does Jude say? Warn them to stop. And what happens if the false teaching stops? We rejoice. We rejoice. We instruct and we rejoice. And then if they don't stop, we get rid of them. We exercise expulsion as part of our loving correction for the sake of the body and the person who's teaching falsehood. Because if we expel someone from our lives who continues to just teach falsely, the reason we do it is to show the harshness. It's like time out. It's to show the harshness of the fact that this is divisive to the body. The same thing with the attitude and actions of people taking upon themselves universal discipline of the church. It's demonic. But we expel people from our lives and from the lives of the assembly so that God, through that, he promises, as he teaches the Corinthians through Paul, um, he promises that he will then reconcile his sheep back to one another. And that when we see that reconciliation, just like Jesus says in Matthew 28, we've gained our brother and we rejoice. We rejoice in that. So error, uh, another thing that Jude talks about is that we should live out the gospel no matter what kind of false teachers are going on. Get rid of them, move on. If they come back, rejoice. Uh, but error, fourth thing, is that is always in play. That God has purposed error and false teachers and he's purposed his enemies to be among the church and to be discovered and be dealt with in a compassionate, polite, temperate, patient manner because God is the one who brings about restitution, not man. And some people in Jude's writing probably said, well, man, what, I mean, how long has this been going on? How long is it going to happen? And that's why he uses all these things. He said, you remember some of Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember the angels that fell from heaven? Remember this? Remember that? Remember the others? Conflict is constant. It's promised. It's part of God's purpose. So don't think you'll ever be free of false teachers in the body of Christ until you are glorified. And God has truly separated the sheep from the goat. Remember the history of the Bible, Jude says. Remember the history. There's even some mythology that is not in the Bible that you need to remember. Remember that about Moses' body and some other stuff? So that's what Jude's about. It's so the church could rejoice. It's what it's all, that's what it all comes down to, is that the church could be free and live in a manner of rejoicing. The letter to the Romans, we all know what that is, but this is Paul's writing to the Christians in the region of Rome uh, to encourage in the faith against Judaizers who were saying, hey, you know what, you're not, you're not 
you're not Jewish enough to be a believer. You got to do these things. He also wanted to give them updates on his missionary plans. He wanted to explain God's purposes of election and the fact that just because someone's an ethnic Jew doesn't mean that they're an elect person. And then he wanted to give a lot of instructions, starting in verse 12 to the end of the text, um, and commands on how to live together in grace and also how to live together in a gracious way amongst the believers of the world and the magistrate and other things like that. So Romans is an instructive text uh, to which we learn truth, and then we say, why was this taught? Because of this. Therefore, we'll walk in this manner. So there's, that's, that's the whole purpose of it. So without the assembly, there's no walking in the manner. You see what I mean? And to abandon the assembly in the context of conflict is, is to not trust the Lord, period. I don't care how people shape it. They are liars, and they are weak and unable to listen and learn because they're not listening to the Scripture of God. First Second Corinthians deal with a lot of mess. This is, and the reason I said that is because this is what Paul wrote for Second Corinthians. I mean, people weren't willing to learn. They were not. They weren't going to be told what to do. They weren't going to be told how to deal with sin. They weren't going to be told how to deal with conflict. They weren't going to be told how to deal with false teaching. They weren't going to stop arguing. They weren't going. And Paul's like, get them out, put them out. And if someone says they're not going to listen, do not consider them a brother. That's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Uh, if they don't listen to my letters, they have no business among you. Get them out. So on the matter of church discipline, on the matter of loving your brother, on the matter of, of being wise, on the matter of being prudent, on the matter of being patient, when people stomp their feet and run away and act crazy and stir up division, you know, division was stirred predominantly in the New Testament by people not wanting to get along and not wanting to reconcile according to the Scripture. It was very little to do with doctrinal things. It was mostly to do with people not being willing to deal with things in a biblical manner. Right, either not deal with sin or deal with things sinfully, <laughs> if, you, if you see what I mean. Uh, so he instructs the church on expulsion. He also instructs the church on restoration. And then he instructs the, on the matters of conscience. He instructs on matters of support and offerings and um, you know, uh, taking up offerings. He defends his authority in this letter uh, to show that what he writes has, has teeth. It's not something that we can um, just ignore. Uh, and then he also gives a lot of encouragement in trial. Second Corinthians chapter four specifically is a very encouraging text uh, for the believer. We got Galatians, Paul. This is the first of Paul's writing, according to what we can do in the context of dating. Some people say it's his last writing, but uh, you know I believe it's his first writing. He rebukes those who trouble the saints with conditions to the gospel. He rebukes the saints, uh, born again believers. There's nowhere in Paul's writing of Galatians that reprobates any person that received the letter. Nobody in Paul's mind who was part of that congregation was a reprobate. Nobody in Paul's mind who was a part of that congregation was an unbeliever. He was just using emphatic and very aggressive uh, verbiage and, um, and, and, and rhetoric to establish the severity of the fact that the Judaizers were unbelieving people and that they were bringing a false gospel and they were bringing worse bondage bondage to the believers in the context of Galatia. Uh, and so he wanted them to instruct them and warn them against these people, to have nothing to do with these people. And then in, in, a, in an attempt to correct that thinking, that a lot of them were like freaking out. Some of them were getting circumcised. I mean, it's crazy. He instructed on faith alone, apart from the law. That's why Galatians is so emphatic. It's not the treatise on things. It is Atriates on this circumstance that Paul wrote as it related to the dysfunction of the local assembly who wasn't living together in gospel unity because they were not dealing with it biblically. They were not dealing with it in a godly way. 
So Paul writes this and charges them to do it. He teaches and admonishes them also then on Christian liberty and not to flaunt that, etc. And, you know, this has everything to do with being the church of Christ. And then we've got Philippians and Colossians and Thessalonians, and I talked about Timothy already and Titus and Philemon and Hebrews. And I could go on and on and on to talk about all these things, but I hope you get the picture of why the New Testament is a letter, a compilation of letters and history written to the assemblies of the saints. And the application of the of these writings are for the intimacy of the saints together. And I'm going to say some things that I really want to, I want you to understand my heart. My heart bleeds for the sheep of Christ in every aspect, in every, in every corner of the world, in every place we, we know of. My heart bleeds. My heart bleeds for the saints local, and I give everything that I can give and Every waking hour, I'm constantly inundated with prayers and thoughts and things for the for the body of Christ. Uh, we're not a we're not a pragmatic ministry of 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 sorts. We're not a we're not a uh, a business. Uh, you know, we're not doing cool things to attract anybody. We're just living life together in hope that our joy will be full in the in, in, the, in the truth of Christ, and that we are able to learn to see and watch God do His work through and in us and through us together. And so uh, my heart bleeds and longs for that continued intimacy and growth. My heart also longs and is burdened greatly for many of you who are without a church family, without local, without even another brother or sister in the area that you can be a part of Christian fellowship in a real-life way. And I say this um, to say that we have been praying, and God will do it in His time. It may be 20 years from now. It may be some of you may not be on the earth when any of these things take place, and the Lord may never do it, but there will be a time where church planters will be equipped to go into the other places where you live and, and start churches, but we can't decide when those things are going to take place. We can't put plans down and go, okay, here's the criterion, check, 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 now plant churches. That, that's not the way the Lord works. The Lord will do what He's going to do. I mean, you're talking about nearly 14 years before Paul's conversion and his first open preaching mission, mission event. Um, I mean, this this is the Lord's timing. Uh, you know, you just don't wake up and go. It's not it's not frivolity and loose cannon zeal. That is ungodly. Uh, it is it is long suffering patience and humility. That's what God does in the people that He's actually literally called, and we wait upon the Lord. But in the end of it all, you know, the New Testament can be learned from and gleaned from, and there are relationships within personal relationships even across the world that of course have some the new testament teaching has an impact on i mean if i have somebody that i i mean i know people in you know other parts of the world other parts of the country um i could be you know i need to treat them kindly i need to treat them as i'm able to i need to pray for them as i can but that's not the application of the new testament the new testament applies in the living together as the saints in a local sense not a foreign sense not a digital sense this, Facebook does not, the church does not exist on Facebook. It does not exist. I don't care what group you're in. Uh, there's a, you know, the sheep without a home. That's the whole point. You have no home. We can minister as much as we can, and we can relate to one another in a biblical way, but that is not the full application of the New Testament writing. And for people who forsake that because of arrogance and, and ignorance, those of you who long for it, Pray for them. Don't get angry. Pray for them. And know that we love you, and we're truly praying for the Lord to establish. And we're doing what we can. And COVID, man, COVID has just like pulled the rug out from under everything we were doing 
as a ministry, everything we were doing, locally and uh, around, and even abroad and internationally, everything. But the Lord is purpose is perfect in His purposes on that. So we just wait, and we love each other the way we can. And I want to talk about these things. I want, I want you all to think about these things. That is where you need to be thinking. You need to be thinking, how can I minister in such a way uh, quit being an apologist. Quit trying to be, you know, an internet hero. Stop. Just find intimacy around the gospel and soak in it. If you've got two people, that's all you need. You don't need a hundred people. You don't need a thousand people. You don't need a lot of likes and things. Find relationships that you can build in the gospel that you can be encouraged one on one with someone else. If you don't have a congregation near you, if you don't have another brother or sister near you, get on the telephone and talk and enjoy. Make the conversation seasoned with grace about the truth of Christ, about the letters of the apostles. And if you got questions, ask each other. If you don't know, ask me. If I don't know, we'll we'll dive into some other things together. We can go to the Excuse me, try not to sneeze. We can go to the scripture and we can learn together and to and, ex, and have it exposed to us by the, the preciousness of our loving Father who gives us the Spirit and gives us wisdom without reproach. So all these things are true and, and, and powerful. Uh, and, and, you know, we can go to John's writings and his letters in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. It's about loving one another. Things revealed is about enduring to the end. And it gives a history of the whole world and the fall of Satan and everything. Showing the showing those suffering saints at the end of things that Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the One who comes with righteousness, uh, and righteousness and rules with thunder and justice, and He is the gracious Lamb that laid Himself down for the for the sins of His people, and no one will stop Him, and no one will take us from His hands, and when we stand with Him around the sea, it will be at peace. There are not even waves at the sea of glass. That's why they call it that. There's it's such a place of peace that the wind doesn't move the water, that kind of stuff. So there's the images there. And um, I've got one other question here, but I think I've run out of time. And, and beloved, I'll pick up with this question on uh, next week. And I love you, and I'm glad that you have decided to, uh, to join us tonight. I'm sorry that I didn't get into all the other questions, but it is good to see you. And we're glad that, uh, that you're well. Please let us know how we can pray for you. Until Wednesday night, see you then. Be blessed. Bye-bye.